Our scripture reading this morning is Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 224. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we have already confessed from the scriptures, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we come now to sit under the word of Christ. And we know when that word is heralded, it's the very voice of the good shepherd. And we're saying, oh Father, that we need to hear his voice. There are friends of mine who are outside of Christ who need to hear his voice saying, come to me and be saved. I pray that hear that voice today. And Father, those of us who have already believed on Christ need to hear it so that we'll stay with Christ and stay in Christ and be built up, continue to be conformed to his image. And that's all stuff that only you can do. You've ordained the preaching of the word to do it. And yet, we plead with you to do the work. We need it. I hope we're desperate for it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When we use the word redeemed, the preposition we often attach to it is from. There are lots of examples I could give you. There are examples from history. The colonies were redeemed from British rule when we won the American Revolutionary War. Ebenezer Scrooge is redeemed from miserliness and stinginess in A Christmas Carol. Less thought of, but just as important is the idea of being redeemed to. So having been redeemed From miserliness, Scrooge was redeemed to generosity and kindness. 
having been redeemed from the English rule of that tyrant King George, the colonies were redeemed to being able to create their own country and their own system of government for their own citizens. Redeemed from, redeemed to. We've been seeing throughout our time in the book of Ruth that Naomi and Ruth are two women who stood in need of redemption. They needed a redeemer. But I wonder, even as we wrap up the book of Ruth today, if you have it clear in your mind what Naomi and Ruth needed to be redeemed from. And I wonder if you have it clear in your mind what they were redeemed to. And to bring things right to your doorstep, are you clear what you were born needing to be redeemed from? And if you're outside of Christ, what you still remain in need of being redeemed from? If you're a believer, do you know what you've been redeemed to? This redemption coin has two sides, and it's imperative that we understand what's on each side so that we can be motivated to pursue redemption and so that we can live grateful lives when we've obtained it. And so the Lord, through the book of Ruth today, is going to help us to understand what sinners need to be redeemed from and what his people have been redeemed to. And I think it'll be helpful to you as we go along if you keep the the outline that we've given you in your bulletin for my sermon handy. If you didn't grab a bulletin, you can find that outline at cmcvermont.org slash gather. So we're wrapping up our time in the book of Ruth today. And I want you to be clear what was the nature of Naomi's and Ruth's plight. What was pitiful about their situation? Well, it was that they were under covenantal curses. Naomi and Ruth, as the book opens, are suffering under the curses of living or being a part of a covenantally unfaithful community. Naomi and Ruth's desperate situation comes their way because of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. To make this case, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you're not familiar with the Bible... It's the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 15. These are the curses that God prophesies for those who fail to keep his covenant. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, And cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick 
to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Do you see what comes from covenant unfaithfulness? Fields, fruitless. Baskets and kneading bowls, empty. Wombs, barren. Consumed off the land, off the land of Canaan, the future land of Israel. And so with those curses... For covenant unfaithfulness in mind, what is it that we see for Naomi and Ruth? Well, first we see that they're off the land. Naomi's an Israelite, but she's in Moab. She and her dead husband Elimelech and their sons Malon and Kilion fled from Bethlehem in Judah to Moab because of famine in Judah. They left their ancestral land. They left behind the land that had been in their family for who knows how long. Whatever land they possessed that they left behind was in Naomi's husband's name, and now he's dead. And their sons are dead. Naomi, it seems, no longer has access to that land or its fruits because, you'll recall, to provide for herself and Naomi, Ruth has to go and glean the remainder of crops in Boaz's field, as we see at the beginning of chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth are landless. Not only that, but Naomi and Ruth are without seed. They're without inheritance. Gone is Naomi's husband, as are both of Naomi's sons. Gone is Ruth's husband. There appears to be no way for Elimelech's family line to continue. Now let me just pause to say, having a lineage doesn't seem like a very big deal to us. I mean, it's, it's kind of neat, I suppose, to think that my having two sons means that my line of the Kimbrel name would continue. But if Sarah and I had only had girls, I wouldn't regard that as much of a loss. Frankly, I'm not sure the world needs more Kimbrels. <laughs> my family tree has a lot of crooked branches in it. But a, a family line just doesn't mean as much to modern Western society in general as it did to those living in ancient, ancient Israel. You see, for Israel... To be without a seed, to be without inheritance, without a heritage, was to be in a cursed state. When David is describing how the Lord will deal with his enemies, David writes in Psalm 21, The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Do you hear that? Something similar we heard in our call to worship from Psalm 34. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The reason why Israel saw childlessness and lack of seed and inheritance as so dire is because they knew the Lord's command to Adam and Eve from Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
The Lord said the same thing to Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Israel remembered that the Lord's promise to childless Abraham and Sarah was that he was going to make of Abraham a great nation, that Abraham's descendants would be as numberless as the stars and as the sand on the seashore. Fruitful wombs meant blessedness, and empty wombs like Ruth's or full family burial plots like Naomi's, that meant cursedness. Remember the Barren wombs prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 for those who fail to keep covenant with the Lord. Naomi's bereft of husband and sons. Ruth, having had no children with Malon, they're experiencing the covenantal curse of being without seed or name or inheritance. And it gets worse. As the book of Ruth opens, they quickly become as those without provision. If they're going to eat, Ruth has to go into a field, you'll recall, and rely on the workers to keep the law prescribed in Deuteronomy 24 when Israel is told to leave a remnant in the field for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, those who are most apt to be poor in their society. They're to leave a remnant so that those folks won't starve. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem from Moab. They return to a life of destitution. They're living hand to mouth until Boaz takes mercy on them. No provision. As a result, then, they're living without promise, without hope. Chapter 1, pleasant Naomi has become bitter Mara. And Ruth, right along with her, they had no land, no seed, no provision, no promise of any improvement, no promise of a bright future, no promise of rest. And to cap it all off, They had no redeemer. At least for now, when the story opens, there was nobody stepping up to reacquire Elimelech's land. No one stepping up to marry Naomi or Ruth to provide for them, to give them a future and a hope, to perpetuate Elimelech's line with a seed. I want you to understand what's the nature of Naomi's and Ruth's plight They are suffering under covenantal curses. You can draw a straight line from the things prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 to the things Naomi and Ruth are suffering. And into that wretched estate walks Boaz, the kinsman redeemer that Naomi and Ruth were so desperately in need of. He redeems landless Naomi and Ruth. Look with me at Ruth chapter 4, where Maya read earlier. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 3. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 3. If you made your way to Deuteronomy just a minute ago, keep going right. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. That's where we are. Ruth chapter 4. Verse 3 says, Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Now maybe some of you are wondering how I could say that Naomi was without land, even as Boaz is saying here in verse 3 that Ruth is, uh, rather that Naomi is selling the parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech. It's probably most accurate to say that Naomi doesn't own the land, but she possesses some rights in the land that once belonged to Elimelech. Ancient property law gets complicated pretty quickly, and wouldn't you know what? I let my real estate license for Israel lapse. (laughs) So it'll suffice to say that the book of Ruth doesn't make it seem like Naomi came back to Judah with a piece of land that she owned and can do with as she pleased. The point is that Boaz buys back the land that Elimelech left behind when he and Naomi and their boys fled famine-stricken Israel to go to the enemy territory of Moab. But because of Boaz, Naomi and Ruth are no longer without land. And soon, they're no longer without seed or an inheritance. Stay in Ruth 4. I know Maya read these verses uh, earlier, but they bear repeating. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. With our modern societal constructs in mind, we'd think, well, when Boaz and Ruth have a baby boy, he's for the redemption of of Ruth, not Naomi. But that isn't what our text says, is it? Boaz and Ruth have a son. And don't too quickly move past the fact that the Lord has been pleased to open Ruth's womb when it was formerly closed during her marriage to Malon. Boaz and Ruth's son is said to be Naomi's redeemer in verse 14, isn't he? This boy is going to perpetuate Elimelech's line. 
by virtue of perpetuating Elimelech's son Malon's line. Boaz is clear in verse 5 of chapter 4. That is his duty, to have Ruth the Moabitess as his wife so as to perpetuate the name of the dead, in this case, Ruth's dead husband Malon, in his inheritance. And so Naomi, who went to Moab with a full bed and a full womb and who came back to Bethlehem with an empty bed and a full cemetery, who went to Moab pleasant and came back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem having experienced measurelessly bitter occurrences, this Naomi now has a restorer of life and a nourisher of her old age. And a daughter-in-law, though she's a Moabitess, loves her. And as precious as sons were in this culture, as we've said, she's worth more to Naomi than seven sons. This one is the one from whom Naomi's redeemer has come. Boaz gives them land, he gives them seed, and he provides for them. No longer do they live hand to mouth, resigned to gleaning the leftovers in a barley field. No, Boaz has repeatedly showed in this book how abundantly he means to take care of Naomi and Ruth. In chapter 2, he breaks his bread with her and shares his wine with her. She eats with him of his food and she eats until she's satisfied and there's still more left over. He gives Ruth the permission to glean, not from the remnants, but from the harvested sheaves. Boaz says for her to take entire bundles home. She goes home with 22 liters of barley that first time. And the night of their midnight rendezvous, Ruth goes home with six measures, perhaps 88 pounds of barley. I was thinking, I hope they're not on the sort of low-carb, gluten-free thing. (laughs) It's clear, Naomi and Ruth will want for nothing. They will enjoy abundance in Boaz's house. And because of all these things, Naomi, who returned to Israel forlorn and bitter, and Ruth, they can smile at the future. They will be abundantly provided for by a worthy man. The land is back in the family. The lap that was made empty by the deaths of Malon and Kilion now holds a baby boy, Obed. They have a redeemer who will give them rest. And why? Why has their helpless situation turned 180 degrees? Why does the story of the book of Ruth begin so horribly and end so hopefully? One reason. The Lord's grace to them through Boaz. Because these two women who so desperately needed redeeming met their Redeemer, and He changed everything for them. Now you need to know that Naomi and Ruth's plight is historical. It happened. It was real. But it's also been given to us in Scripture to help us to see the sorry condition that exists both now and eternally for those who are without a Redeemer, for those who are without the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person has failed to keep covenant with the Lord. Romans 5 tells us that we broke the covenant the Lord made with Adam when Adam broke it. We were in Adam, so when he broke that covenant, we did. 
Now, we weren't born under the old covenant, the law of Moses, but if we had been, we would have failed to keep it because all the rest of Israel failed to keep it. And even if you want to try and exonerate yourself from being guilty of failing to keep the old covenant with the Lord because you weren't born under the old covenant, what that covenant boiled down to, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. There isn't a one of us that's ever obeyed that fully for a minute. So we stand condemned. We stand guilty of being covenant breakers. We stand rightly deserving of all the covenantal curses that we see Naomi and Ruth suffering under because of the covenantal unfaithfulness of Israel during the time of the judges. They were without land and without seed and without provision and without the promise of rest. And in a fuller way, those apart from Christ will be without blessed land. They'll be without any land at all. When the Lord restores this creation at his son's return and gives his people the whole of renewed creation to rule under Christ, the whole new heavens and new earth, those outside of Christ will be exiled from that land, suffering an eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. As the psalmist said, they'll be without an inheritance, without seed. Their memory will be cut off from the earth. Their descendants, their offspring from among the children of men are destroyed. There is no provision. There's only emptiness and want. There is no rest. There's only weeping and gnashing of teeth, only anguish Night and day, is there night and day in a place of outer darkness? There's only torment. Why? Because there will have been no redemption. There will have been no one to redeem those sinners from their covenant curses. And that's the future, friends, of every mother's child, including every single one of you. Boys and girls who will be in discovery next week, junior high, senior high youth group students, College students, singles, young marrieds, older marrieds, every single one, apart from Christ, that's the future because of your covenant unfaithfulness. Hallelujah, therefore, for the one greater than Boaz, who offered his own body and blood to redeem sinners bound for the eternal Cursing do all covenant breakers, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just go down the list. Does he redeem the land for his people? Yes. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So when is it? When creation, when the whole universe, all of which has been stained with Adam's sin and cursed, all of which has been subjected to futility, Paul says, when will creation be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God? When is it that we who've believed on Christ will experience the redemption of our bodies? It's at Christ's return. And on that day, we won't have just a plot of land in the Middle East somewhere. We'll have an entire 
curse-free cosmos to enjoy. We'll sing. He's come to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. He doesn't just redeem our family's little Judean plot. At his return, he redeems a whole universe for his people. And does he redeem our seedlessness? Yes. When he saves us and he places us in his bride, the church, he uses us to create his sons and daughters by faith when we proclaim and minister the gospel and see people born again. We obey the command to be fruitful and multiply when we get the gospel to unbelievers so that they can repent from their sin and place their faith in Christ. Apart from Christ, we'll have our names cut off eternally. But in him, we who were destined to have the memory of us utterly destroyed rather get to participate in seeing an, in, an eternal inheritance, eternal descendants, those who bear the unmarred image of God, born again into the family of God. He redeems us to an eternal inheritance. Does he redeem our lack of provision? My goodness, who provides for us like Jesus? An old song says, he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. He gives us eternal life. For our food, we feed on him who is the bread who came down from heaven. We feed on him by faith until our souls are satisfied and we look and we see that there's an endless supply still left over. He breaks his bread, his body, with us and for us. He pours us his wine, his blood, until we find by faith that we are satisfied, deeply satisfied, and there's still more left over. Does he provide for us? He provides for us peace and life and light and the forgiveness of sin and gladness and righteousness such that 22 liters or 88 pounds would seem like a thimbleful in comparison. Does he redeem our bleak futures so that we now have the promise of life and rest? You know he does. Naomi perhaps spoke better than she knew in chapter 1 and verse 9 when she said to her Moabitess daughters-in-law, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Naomi's motivation to hatch her plan for Ruth to pursue Boaz at the threshing floor was because Ruth needed the promise of rest. That's chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Ruth was restless, as was Naomi and all those without a redeemer. Does Christ redeem his people from restlessness? Does he redeem his people to rest? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Savior says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Those who die without Christ, Revelation 14 says of them, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. But those who die in Christ, that same chapter, the Spirit says they are blessed indeed, that they may rest from their labors. Rest from laboring to justify ourselves. Rest from our laboring to to prove ourselves worthy of God's merit by our own efforts. Rest from lostness. Rest from restlessness. Rest. Eternal rest in our Redeemer who is himself our rest. And how does our Redeemer go about accomplishing all this? Well, there's a redemption price, isn't there? Boaz had to pay to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Boaz had to pay to have Ruth for his bride, and that's certainly true for the greater than Boaz. So what was our redemption price? Knowing that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Rather, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. There's been a lot of talk about debt forgiveness this week. The sin debt toward God wasn't forgiven, strictly speaking. It was satisfied. It was paid in full. It was paid in full by Christ's death on the cross. As Jesus had poured out on himself the Father's righteous wrath toward his sinful people until Jesus had drunk the cup of that wrath in full. Every bitter drop so that the Lord could show his righteousness at the present time justly handling sins not turning a blind eye to them not waving a magic wand at them so that they go away unpaid for not sweeping them under the rug but putting them on his son until his son had paid for them so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus To put it another way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is, to redeem us from covenant curses, to redeem us to covenant blessings, Christ had to suffer covenant curses that we incurred for our sin in his own body and our place on the cross. So as we think about how to make use of this sermon for our lives, I want to first speak to you, friends of mine, who are outside of Christ. It's terrible to speed 60 miles an hour down a road that's washed out with an enormous sinkhole. And I think it's another worse thing to have nobody to warn you about it. And I think it's yet another still worse thing to have someone warn you and to ignore those warnings and to careen headlong to your death. And I'm telling you this morning with the voice of a friend who cares about where you spend eternity, 
boys and girls, students, young adults, older adults. You're speeding 60 miles an hour down a road that's washed out with an enormous sinkhole. But, hallelujah, you are not without warning. I'm warning you. What's more, through my voice, the Lord God Almighty is warning you. And through his word, as you see Naomi and Ruth's dire straits, the Lord is warning you. Because as awful as their situation was, it's just a signpost of the trouble that you're in because you haven't been redeemed. Right now, you languish under all the curses of those who fail to keep covenant with God and you deserve those curses. Because you failed and you continue to fail to keep covenant with God. The scripture says you're, you're separated from Christ. You're alienated from the commonwealth of God's people. You're strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But the Bible says something marvelous to you who come here this morning outside of Christ. Through Christ's blood, he causes those who were once far off, like you, dear sinner, to be brought near by the shedding of his blood for sinners like you on the cross. The Bible's talking about Gentiles like Ruth the Moabitess when it talks about those who are far off and who have no hope and are without God in the world. But it's describing your plight this morning too. And it's describing your redemption when the scriptures say that you can be brought near to God through faith in his son's death and resurrection. So how about it? You who are outside of Christ, what's holding you back? Are you ready to be redeemed? Are you ready to be done with your hopelessness? Are you ready to be done with your being bound for hell? Come to the Redeemer. Take a cue from Ruth. Come to the Redeemer. Ruth had to wake her Redeemer, Boaz, if she was going to be redeemed. You don't have to wake up your Redeemer. The one who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, the Bible says. You just come. Acknowledge what a mess you're in because of your sin. Whether you feel like you're in a mess or not, the Bible says you are. And come to Jesus. If you don't feel your need of him, ask him to help you feel your need of him. Ask God to give you eyes to see your need of him. That's all he requires is to see your need of him. To see your need of a redeemer because of your eternally perilous state. And then to come to Christ in repentance and faith. Jesus promises, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, isn't this marvelous? I will never cast out. So come, come today, sinner. You're not promised tomorrow. Come today, come to Christ, the only redeemer today. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, how might we make use of the book of Ruth? Our other brothers who've preached have given us lots of applicational help thus far. Can I ask for your ears for just one more round? First, herald this Redeemer. 
As much as is up to you, make sure that if anyone you know goes to hell as the just payment for their sin, they can't say in truth, no one ever told me about Jesus. This news is too good. This Redeemer is too wonderful to keep to ourselves. This redemption is too marvelous not to herald abroad. So let me give you a couple of practical ideas for doing that. Look for opportunities to invite people to church services or to outreach events. A great many of you would say that you're stymied in your witnessing or your evangelizing because you just don't know enough and you don't know how to respond to a question you might be asked. Well, just get them here. How's that? In our neighborhood, there was a potluck recently. I know there are a lot of people here who live in my neighborhood, but I have to confess to you, I wasn't excited about going to that potluck. I went with the express purpose of meeting people in the neighborhood in the hopes that I can build on those relationships in the months or years to come for the sake of the gospel. That was why I went. My kids went for the creamy truck. I went, <laughs> I went for the gospel's sake. So let me ask you, do you know your neighbors? Have you ever invited them to church or to an outreach event? Have you ever invited them to your house for coffee or tea or dinner or dessert and just gotten to know them? You can learn a lot by asking questions. You can ask them if they went to church growing up. I've found that that's one of the most fruitful questions I can ask. That just kind of opens the whole shooting match. Maybe before they're willing to come to church, or to go to the men's golf scramble, or to participate in a women's investigative Bible study. You can take them through Sin, Savior, Saving Faith, our little Bible study at cmcvermont.org slash Bible studies. But maybe you can invite them to a women's investigative Bible study, or the ladies' Christmas breakfast, or the golf scramble, or a men's night. Just have your antenna up. I was in Starbucks a few months back with Brad Parker, whom many of you will know. And uh, as I say, I just, by God's grace, try to keep my antenna up. And a guy walked in with a University of Georgia sweatshirt. Some of you guys know this story. When you wear a University of Georgia sweatshirt around me in Vermont, I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> so I said, go dogs, which isn't quite English, but it's uh, easily translated. And the guy walked past me, but then you could just sort of watch in real time as it registered that somebody in Williston, Vermont said, go dogs to him. And he came back, and we talked, and I had some, some cards with our church's information on it in my wallet, and I gave him one. And several weeks later, he came to one of our worship services before he moved out of the area. I'm just saying, keep your antenna up. Maybe the relationship with your neighbor builds such that you can indeed get into deeper things with them and you can share the whole gospel with them and you can even invite them perhaps to forsake their sin and believe on Jesus. Let it go as far as it can go so long as you're clear that your aim is to get them here around the brethren under the word. In the vein of practical application, when the summer Bible camp wrap-up night comes back around next year. Make it your aim to be here, whether you have a kid in summer Bible camp or not. Perhaps especially if you don't have a kid in summer Bible camp. Why? Because the more that guests meet people in our church, 
the more life they see here. The more people who are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ that they meet and interact with, and the clearer the picture they get of who Christ is. Bob and Sarah hosted the Awana kickoff, cookout, cookout, kickoff, some combination of those things this past Friday night. I watched with joy as CMCers struck up conversations with parents who don't attend our church, looking for ways to connect for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel, moving the friendship forward for the sake of getting folks here around the body and under the word. So I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, one way to make use of the book of Ruth as we see this Redeemer is to herald this Redeemer. Travel with ultimate questions. We've got a whole stack of business cards on the desk in our office. Take them and invite your mechanic or the person who cuts your hair or the person who waits on your table. Just invite them to church. There are a thousand ways to do this. Herald him. Work to see Christ's family line perpetuated as people are born again. Second, as we've been saying to you all along, rejoice in this Redeemer. I thought Pastor Eric did a good job here last week, so I won't linger long. I want to say amen to everything Eric said about rejoicing in your Redeemer and in the redemption from sin and death and hell that he's accomplished for you by his death and burial and resurrection. Church, nothing compares to thinking on Christ and on his salvation for you when it comes to getting you out of the doldrums and out of your sorrow and despair. So lift up your eyes, brother and sister, to Christ. Stay around his people. Stay in his word, both for yourself and primarily in the gathering. That's how you remain rejoicing in this Redeemer. Meditate often on your formerly helpless estate and how Christ showed mercy to you because he loved you. And then lastly, dear Christian, live out this redemption. There's a way of living that's consonant with having been redeemed from all the things I talked about earlier and having been redeemed to all the things we've been talking about by one as magnificent as the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a forsaking of sin that's consonant with having been redeemed. You who would confess that Christ has redeemed you by his blood, are there sins you're coddling Are there sins you're giving quarter to because they don't seem like that big of a deal? Maybe attitudinal sins. You're putting up with impatience in yourself. You're putting up with grumpiness or arrogance or pride. You're putting up with judgmentalism or you're putting up with discontentment you're still letting those sins put their feet up in your living room because they don't seem as bad as the stuff you used to wrestle with or still wrestle with, or maybe they don't seem as bad as other people's stuff. Is that you? Living out this redemption means repenting from that. Living out this redemption means waging all-out war on any remaining sin that you're aware of. Paul says to believers in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Forsake the sin, brother and sister, that cost your Redeemer his lifeblood. 
and pursue the holy and righteous living that his redemption has freed you to live out. Forsake those things, those occasions, those scenarios that tempt you to sin. Pursue rather the music and the conversations and the friendships and the podcasts and the entertainment and the leisure activities and all the rest that help you to think on Christ and his work for your salvation. And living out this redemption means prioritizing those who've also been redeemed. If you've been redeemed, brother and sister, that is the single most important characteristic about you. Not your skin color or your hair color or your hometown or your favorite hobby or your education or your income level. It's whether Christ has redeemed you. And since that's most essential to who you are, you ought to prioritize being with and serving and loving those for whom that's also true. Every other relationship you have is going to end at death. But the relationships you have with the redeemed will go on into eternity. So prioritize them now. That's part of what it means to live like you've been redeemed. Prioritize gathering with the redeemed and worshiping the redeemer with them. Live out this redemption. Brothers and sisters, the writer of the book of Ruth is saying with a megaphone, there is a redeemer from sin and death and hell. And it's not Boaz and Ruth's baby Obed, and it's not even Obed's grandson, great King David. It's the son of David who rules from David's throne. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him for redemption. That's the message of Ruth. And so let's herald Christ. Let's rejoice in him, and let's, by his spirit, live like we've been redeemed. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from eternal covenant curses and redeemed us to eternal blessings. Help us to be people who live in accordance with that salvation, who live with the joy, the gratitude that's consonant with that salvation and help us not to keep it to ourselves so that others may repent and believe as we've been given the grace to do. Thank you for your son, our marvelous redeemer. And we pray in his name, amen.